Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Practicing the Way Vision Series. We are coming up on the end of our fall-long vision series on Practicing the Way of Jesus. Going forward in the new year, the plan is to reorient our entire church around this idea of apprenticeship to Jesus of Nazareth. We said that to apprentice under Jesus is to order your life around three goals, and this language is fast becoming familiar. Say it out loud with me. One is to be with Jesus. Two, become like Jesus. And three, do what he did. That's our summary of what exactly it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. As you can see, following Jesus is a whole life endeavor. It's not a hobby or a side project or a fad. You wake up in the morning and whether you're a pastor or a student or a banker or an architect or a barista, that is the reason you get out of bed. But the question, of course, is how exactly does this work in the Western, secular, urban, digital world that we call home, where most of us are over busy and so many people are stressed out and our culture as a whole is a mile wide and an inch deep? And that's the nerve that I kind of want to touch on over the last week or two in our series. For today, let's start off right here in Luke chapter 9. We read this at the beginning of the series, and I thought it would be a fitting way to end. Pick up in verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private with his disciples, as a regular practice of Jesus, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? Well, they replied, some say you're John the Baptist, others think you're Elijah, still others that you're one of the prophets of long ago, come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're God's Messiah, or that can be translated Christ or King. You're the long-awaited King of Israel and the world. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, not yet, it's not time yet for that to get out. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things, that's a moniker for himself, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the Torah, and be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Whoa, that's, what kind of king is that true of? That's disorienting. But then he said to them all, okay, this isn't just for me. Whoever wants to be my, and the word in Greek is mathetes, usually it's translated disciple, we think a better translation is apprentice, must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will, what? Lose it, but whoever, wants, whoever loses their life for me will, what? Save it. So we've been into this conversation for three months now about the invitation of Jesus to become a mathetes or a disciple or an apprentice. But notice what has to happen first. In order for us to go forward in January as a church to reorient our community around practice and to do that with other people in your neighborhood, in order for any of that to happen, first things first, you and I have to, quote, deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow after Jesus. At the center of apprenticeship to Jesus is a symbol, and it's the symbol of the cross. Now, over two millennia now, we've become numb and desensitized to the horror of this image. Crucifixion had been around for hundreds of years before Jesus, but the Roman Empire turned it into an art form in its quest for world domination. One historian writes this, Crucifixion was quintessentially a public affair. Naked and affixed to a stake, cross, or tree, the victim was subjected to savage ridicule by frequent passerbys, while the general populace was given a grim reminder of the fate of those who assert themselves against the authority of the state. 
Now, the ancient Near East was an honor-shame culture, which is a bit hard for you and I to wrap our head around, although with social media, we are fast becoming an honor-shame culture. But in that kind of a world, the most shameful way to die was by crucifixion. In fact, it was so shameful that it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen, no matter the crime. It was reserved not only for non-Romans, but for the worst of the worst. In fact, it was so ignominious that the writers of the Gospels, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, can't even bring themselves to describe it in any details. You read the New Testament, there's no Mel Gibson-esque passion kind of story. It's not there. All they can bring themselves to write is one line, quote, and they crucified him. It would be like today if Jesus was killed on YouTube in front of billions of people by ISIS with a machete after being stripped naked and beat to a pulp and abused. So inhumane and barbaric and grotesque and embarrassing that we could not even talk about it in public. All that to say the cross in Jesus' day was not this cute kind of sanctimonious Christianese symbol. It was not an item of jewelry that you would wear around your neck. It was not a logo on a church website. It was not a piece of art in a church building. It was a symbol and an evocative one at that, but it was a symbol of death. The invitation of Jesus was essentially this, in my paraphrase. If you want to really live, then first you have to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you've ever ever read his work, in his kind of famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, he had that famous line, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. There's a lot of truth in that. Now, for a lot of people, it's a call to a literal death. Bonhoeffer is a great example. He was killed by the SS in Nazi Germany. Our brothers and sisters right now living under ISIS in the Middle East are yet another example. But this has been going on ever since Jesus and the 12. James, if you've read the New Testament, in the book of Acts, was the first martyr beheaded by Jerusalem in Jerusalem by Herod. Matthew was killed by the sword in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged by horses through the streets of Alexandria. Luke was hung in Greece. Thomas was speared to death in India. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. John was dipped alive in boiling oil and then left on a rock in the Mediterranean to die. I hope that should the need ever arise, that you or I would be willing to suffer the same fate in our apprenticeship to Jesus. But thankfully, for most of us, at least in a Western context, that's not a problem. It's not an issue. It's not a call for you to a literal death, but to a metaphoric one. And I think Jesus clearly has that in mind. In his language, it's a call to self-denial. John Calvin used that phrase self-denial to summarize the entire life of discipleship. So if you were to ask the reformer John Calvin, in one phrase, what is following Jesus all about? He would answer you, it's all about self-denial. To say yes to Jesus is to say yes to a thousand other things. To say yes to your desire to become an apprentice and be with Jesus and become like Jesus and do all the stuff that he did is to say no to a thousand other desires. To say no to spending your time and money however you want. To say no to a life of individualism. You give up your autonomy and your control and instead live in community with a group of people to your right and to your left. It's saying no to self-expression of your sexual identity or desire or whatever, however you want, by whatever standard makes the most sense to you at this point in your life. The cross is saying whatever, whenever, whatever, wherever, whenever. Whatever you say to do, I'll do it. Wherever you say to go, I'll go. Whenever you say to go there or not go there, I'm yours all in 100%. Now, most of us obviously aren't at this place, at least not all the way. 
I read over the last week about how the Knights Templar during the Crusades in the 11th century were baptized, which is weird enough, and they were baptized in full armor, but they would take the sword and they would hold their sword up out of the water as they were baptized, as if to say, God, you can have all of my life except for this one part, except for the violence and the injustice that I do with my career, how I make a living. Now, I read that and I just started to laugh. I thought, how idiotic, like who in the world would do that? And then I realized we all do that on a regular basis. They're just way more honest than we are. Like we're really good at hypocrisy. Like we've turned that into an art form after millennia of church history. Can you imagine if we actually had like honest baptisms? It was like just hold up whatever you don't want to give over to Jesus. And so people like baptized with an iPhone up or like a picture of a girlfriend or a schedule or a Wi-Fi habit or an identity or a label or a dream or a career plan or a shopping habit of injustice or a you fill in the blank. We all live this way, just some of us are more honest than others. We all have this bent to say, God, you can have most of my life except not this part or that part or that part because I keep that back for myself. But that is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is based on this pattern, this template, this rhythm that was set by Jesus himself of death, burial, and resurrection. And that is the pattern not just for Jesus, but for every single apprentice of Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. Now this life of the cross, life of self-denial, is this invitation to come take up your cross, live this way. It's found in all four Gospels. So if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's in all three. But my favorite is Luke. And we read from Luke because he slides in that word daily. And I love that juxtaposition. So the cross isn't something, it's not a one-time event. Oh yeah, I did that back in like 1992 when I was baptized. It is an ongoing way of life. It is a daily death to all sorts of things, to what the writer Paul, who's responsible for a good chunk in the New Testament, to what he calls the flesh. He writes this in Galatians 5, and I've read this a few times in our series because I really feel like it's a key passage in apprenticeship to Jesus. It's great. It's well worth your time if you ever want to memorize scripture. Galatians 5 is a great place to start. Let's read it again. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then look at this. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Like, we need to, we need to hear that in the day and age of Oprah. But, if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. All of you with your debauchery, tone it down, Okay idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I love his list because he puts like orgies right next to envy. It's all in there. Nobody gets out of that list alive, right? I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to King Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, there's so much here I wish I had time to get into. But the point I really want to make is that for Paul, in his framework for apprenticeship to Jesus, your body is the focal point of your relationship to God, meaning it's in your body that you relate to the God who made you. But your body is also a battleground between two warring factions that he calls the flesh and the spirit. 
The flesh, if you were here last week, we uh, used some of the language of a philosopher. Your flesh is your first order desires, if you were here. Your lower animal-like desires for food, water, sleep, sex, domination at one level that are then warped and bent out of shape by the human condition that now have become sinful desires. So Paul's list right there of sexual immorality, impurity, and of course, debauchery. The spirit is your second order desires, your higher human desires that are animated by the spirit of the living God to cultivate in you the inner disposition of Jesus, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, and on down that beautiful list. And every day you face a war of desire in your body and in your mind and in your whole person. Like you have this warring faction. Do you feel that tension? You live into it every single day. You have some desires that are straight up evil and other desires that are good and beautiful and true. And you live in the combat and the tension and the violence between those two desires in your body. So one of the key tasks of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to crucify, or in our language, put to death your flesh, your first order desires or your sinful desires in order to experience resurrection life on the other side. But it's not just the flesh, not just sinful desires that we have to die to. On a regular basis, desires arise in our heart or mind that are not sinful per se, but simply are not Jesus' call on our life. And there are things that maybe are neutral or maybe are good, maybe are really good, that you sense even now at this season of your life, God is calling you to say no to. God is calling you to crucify. God is calling you to put to death and to move on from. My point is that over and over again, on a daily basis, you and I have to crucify all sorts of desires that we carry in the tension of our body. And the cross, one of the main things you need to see in this passage tonight, the cross is the foundation of apprenticeship to Jesus and transformation into his image. Pay close attention to the sequence there in verse, I think it's verse 23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple. So if you're here and you want to be a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus, you've been around the last two or three months getting a, a framework for what all of that means. And you think, I'm in. I want to step into this. I want to live in community. I want to be transformed into the image of Jesus and discover a real true human life out of that fantastic. First things first, whoever wants to be my disciple must, meaning it's non-optional, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow after me. That's step one, or you will never get anywhere. I love this from Willard. Self-denial, and I love his definition here, is the overall settled condition of life in the kingdom of God, better described as death to self. In this and this alone lies the key to the soul's restoration. Christian spiritual formation rests on this indispensable foundation. So everything that we've been talking about all fall long, it rests on this indispensable foundation of death to self. And it cannot proceed. It won't go anywhere except insofar as that foundation is being firmly laid and sustained. Meaning none of the stuff that we've been talking about all fall long, none of it will get anywhere in your life unless you have this foundation for the house that is your life of death to self, of the crucified life, of whatever you want to call it. Again, if you want to really live, that's fantastic, but first, you have to die. But for a lot of people, this is just too much to ask. Look down at the end of the chapter, 
verse 57. Here's one story. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Love that heart, right? Okay, Jesus, whatever it takes, I'm after you. Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man is homeless. It's Jesus for, are you sure? Really, you think Jesus would be like, you're amazing, like you want, like whatever, you're fantastic. Instead, it's, are you sure? Are you really up for this? And then Jesus said to another man, follow me, become my disciple. But he replied, well, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. We think that's a first century euphemism for let me go back and take over the family business and walk my parents into retirement, make sure they're cared for and I'm cared for and set up in perpetuity. Like, let me just kind of take care of business back at home and rejoin you in a few years. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So I think this is a great story. You have people across the spectrum, some people who are just like literally like a dog, just like, Jesus, I want to follow you, like after Jesus. A dog, that's a bad analogy, I'm sorry. I meant like really like chomping at the bit or whatever to follow after Jesus. But then you have other people who are dragging their feet, who make excuses for, well, I can't do it right now, maybe later. I can't do it this way, that way, maybe another way. And we all do this, right? We all make excuses. We find all sorts of ways to justify our lack of self-denial. And I have a family to take care of is a perennial favorite. And all I want you to notice here is that the problem isn't that this man doesn't believe in Jesus, doesn't believe he's a rabbi, a a prophet, a messiah, or even more than that, the Lord. That's not on issue. The problem is that he's not willing to pay the price to become an apprentice of Jesus. The issue here isn't apprenticeship versus atheism. It's apprenticeship versus a vague, non-committal, consumeristic faith that wants the benefit of Jesus without the cost. One of my favorite things about Jesus is he is just so straight up. He does not beat about the bush. There's no pitch or any of that with Jesus. He's really honest that if you want to follow me, fantastic, but it will cost you. Turn over to chapter 14, just a few pages to the right. Here's another story that I think does a great job of saying that. Look down at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, so whenever the crowd would get large, whenever Jesus would get really popular, he'd say something really unpopular to just kind of thin it out. That's like Jesus... Church growth, you're laughing. Like, I'm not like exegesis. That's actually what he did. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, so he's like, okay, I need to say something people don't like. 26, if anyone, and this is, a, this is a good one. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. You're like, yeah, my mom's annoying. That's no problem for me. Okay, this is the first century. It's Israel. It's a patriarchal, matriarchal culture. It's a family-based culture. This is hyperbole. He's not actually saying you get to hate your mom. He's like, that's right. It's Jesus. No, it's not jesus That's a whole, don't misread Jesus here. It's hyperbole saying you need to love me more than the dearest, closest passion and love of your heart. And then he goes on to say this. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Like here it is over and over again. And then here's a hypothetical story. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. And I know you're out here in the room tonight. You're just like, I really want to build a tower. That's your, like, that's your, that's your dream. What's your vision for the next you know, year of your life? That's it. I want to build a tower, okay? This is just for you. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? But if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying that person began to, began to build and wasn't able to finish. 
you and the tower just never got done. You don't want that to happen. Here's another hypothetical story, and this is just stuff out of the first century world. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. And that is intense language. Read that one more time with me. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. I just love Jesus. There's no sales pitch. There's no PR. There's no celebrity endorsement. He's honest. To follow me will cost you. And before you say, oh, I'm in, you need to weigh the cost-to-benefit analysis. Now, he says that because Jesus is smart as a whip, and he knows, like, the math. He knows that when you do the math, it's a no-brainer. You get far more than you give, and we'll talk about that. But still, it will cost you, in particular on the front end. And for a lot of people, it's just too much. Turn the page to chapter 18. Here's one famous story. Chapter 18, verse 18. You may know this, you may not, no worries. A certain ruler, kind of a a wealthy man from the nobility, asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Common question in the day. Well, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one's good except God alone. You know the commandments, and he starts to quote from the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and your mother. Yeah, 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 all these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Pause there. Can you imagine, what would you do if Jesus said that to you tonight? Now, this is not a command for everybody, but it's a command for some people. What would you do, seriously, if Jesus said to you, tonight, sell everything you own. You're like, I'm 19, I'm in college, I don't own anything. I'd sell it all. (laughs) The whole box. You're like, that, okay, maybe that's a bad analogy. But those of you that are out of college, you're in your career, let's say you have money, let's say you're doing really well. What if Jesus were to say, sell your car, sell your condo, sell your bicycle, sell your whatever, get rid of your retirement, like all of it. Sell it all and follow me. What would you say? What would, I don't really want to know what I would say. I don't really want to think about it. And then he goes on. Um, sell what you have, then come follow me. When he heard this, the man became very sad because he was very wealthy. And the story goes on, and the man in the story does not follow Jesus. This rich, young, non-minimalist just could not take up his cross and follow Jesus. There was an obstacle between him and the life to the full in the language of Jesus. It had to die for him to live. For him, the obstacle was money. All of us have some kind of an obstacle, or for some of us, there's many, more than one, that is between us and the life that Jesus has on offer. It might be money for you as well, or it might be sex, or it might be power, or it might be something else. The point is that each of us has to die in order to experience life to the full. But this guy just could not do it. We read that he went away, and the word there is sad. And I think the story is here, and there's still a resonance to it millennia later, because it happened, and it happens all the time. 
I know people just like the man in the story, people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, or even more than that, the Son of God, but just live with this low-grade unhappiness because they just can't quite bring themselves to take up the cross. It happened, and it happens all the time. I think that's why the man in the story is nameless, because he's every man, he's every woman, he's you, he's me on a regular basis. It happened, and it happens all the time. You know, it's always been hard to take up the cross. This teaching that I'm giving tonight has never been a popular teaching. It's like, if you want to shrink your church, just talk about this one. This is how you do it. It's Jesus' formula based on Jesus' life right there. It's never been a popular teaching, not in the first century. And in the 21st century, my guess is it's less popular than ever before. How do you talk about self-denial in an age that is all about self-fulfillment? This guy, Jatani, who's one of my favorite Christian writers, who's actually kind enough to edit my next book, and so we've kind of become friends. And I was rereading some of his stuff recently, and I love this from a book of his called The Divine Commodity. He writes, My secret is that I want to be relevant and popular. I want my desires fulfilled and pain minimalized. I want a manageable relationship with an institution rather than a messy relationship with real people. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events rather than through the hard work of discipline. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve and not look at the darkness in my heart. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity to do my will on earth as it is in heaven. Man, he is really messed up. And I can't relate to that at all. But I'm guessing you can, and that's why I read it. When I first read this book, uh, I tweeted out, I think it was this quote or another one like it, and Sky tweeted back at me, that book is why I will never be able to get a job at a megachurch ever. (laughs) And I know him well enough. That's not a slam on megachurch in general. It's just to call out the elephant in the room and to say, listen, we live in a tension between the invitation of Jesus to, hey, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me, and the mantra of our culture. If you remember, over the summer, we spent a lot of time, did a lot of work on this. We read from A Secular Age, which is the seminal work on secularization by Charles Taylor, a philosopher. He writes about the shift all over the Western world from what he calls a culture of authority, where your moral and spiritual authority was external. It was located in God, or the Bible, or the church, or tradition, or your parents, to what he calls a culture of authenticity that we're living in now, where your plumb line for right and wrong is internal. It's located in the self. You are the authority, in particular what you think and what you feel is now the judge, the arbitrator of what is right and what is wrong. The Oprah-esque mantra of be true to yourself is the new American dream. Taylor writes this, the understanding of life which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, right? You're a snowflake, all of that mumbo jumbo. I mean, you're great. You're just not nearly as great as you think you are. And that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity, which used to be called an ancient vision of the good life, with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation by religious or political authority. So the goal now is to throw off any form of 
external authority because that's coercive, that's controlling, and to become your authentic self in freedom. But freedom really ever since World War II, or at least since the 60s, has been redefined. It used to mean freedom to want the good, the beautiful, and the true, and the willpower to do the good, the beautiful, and the true. Now when people talk about freedom, what most people mean is freedom to do whatever the heck they want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. You see this in the rise of the sexual liberation gospel, where any kind of self-denial of sexual desire in particular is thought of as not only behind the times, but as repressive if it's from you and oppressive if it's from other people. As if the orgasm is the highest good in life. And unless if you can have it whenever you want it, with whomever you want it, however you want it, then you can't live a happy life. And we just reject that assumption. Our nation was built, our entire nation was built on rebellion against authority from the Revolutionary War on. But it's not just an American thing. Over the last three or four hundred years, across the Western world, you see this upsurge in an anti-royal, anti-authoritarian bent parallel to the rise of democracy, which I'm all for. But the English beheaded Charles I, you know your history, and established a republic under Cromwell. The French then beheaded King Louis XVI. The Russians killed Tsar Nicholas, along with all of his children, just to wipe out the royal line forever so there would never be another king, never be another queen in Russia again. We only like royals on the cover of, you know, Us Weekly. We, we laugh about it, but we actually don't like this idea of kingship, queenship, or authority at all. We prefer democracy where every man is king and every woman is queen. So this idea of Jesus as the king with a capital K, and that's what the word Messiah or Christ means, is king. It's so against the flow of our culture because the heart of kingship is the idea of authority, and we're anti-authoritarian. To come under authority is to surrender of your own free will and your volition, not coercion, but of your own free will. It's to surrender your autonomy and control to somebody else. And we hate that in the West. We go to war against that in the West. So there is a deep conflict between the gospel of Jesus is Lord and the gospel of the West, which is essentially, no, he's not, I am. Keep your laws off my body. Be yourself, so on and so forth. Do you feel that tension? I feel it every day in culture and in my own mind and in my own heart and in my own body. Because it's not just out there, that tension. It's in here, in the church. You know, I've been gutted, to, on a serious note, to watch the explosion of the prosperity gospel really in my lifetime. Just as a general rule, if you're new to Jesus, whenever there's a word in front of the word gospel, like it, you're, you're off to a bad start. Whether it's prosperity gospel or reformed gospel or social gospel, I'm just, let's just have gospel. Unless if the word is Jesus before it, it's not a, it's not a good thing. But when I was a kid, you know, the prosperity gospel was this fringe, weird, kind of small church Pentecostal thing. Most people thought, yeah, that's crazy. Then it was repackaged and popularized as self-help. And then over the last 10 years, through some stuff I won't name, but yes, I'm saying, no, whatever, I won't name, it's become even more mainstream through this young, hipster, kind of cool church vibe. And it's so easy for me to point fingers and think, man, we are so much better than they are. We're not a megachurch, those megachurches. We're not, we don't teach the prosperity gospel. We talk about discipleship, the way of Jesus. We did a whole teaching right before Christmas on the cross. Everybody else was talking about like Jesus in the manger. We're talking about die to yourself right in the middle of Christmas. 
We're so much better than those Christians. We're so much better than all those other people. It's so easy for me to slip into a spiritual pride. But then this last week, I was rereading Disappearing Church by our friend Mark Sayers. And this paragraph just hit me like a freight train. Like, brace yourself. Here we go. He writes, we subtly imbibe the implicit prosperity gospel. And it is implicit. It's just there. We don't even think about it, but we feel it through consumerism and advertising, which are in full swing right now for Christmas, but also through viewing the lives of other Christians who seem to lead amazing, meaningful, pleasure-filled lives. We only have to trawl through our Instagram feeds to find pastors, believing musicians, artists, authors, and activists who seem to live incredible lives. These people seem to have the best of both worlds. They follow Jesus and get to travel, live in cool neighborhoods, hang with really interesting people, have incredible marriages, or rock the single life, and connect with the most amazing people. It's like, that's basically my whole Instagram feed, including my own, where I make you all think that my life is way better than it actually is. Even I'm jealous of myself on Instagram. I'm like, dang, wow, that's amazing, all right? We do not recognize, this is so true of me, we do not recognize the way in which the implicit prosperity gospel affects all of us until our unspoken expectations are not met. So something goes down, and we all have expectations. You wake up every day, you have expectations for your life, for your future, in particular if you're young. All of a sudden it does not happen, and something dark and really gnarly starts to rise to the surface of your heart. We understand that God would ask people in the two-thirds world to give up things, to sacrifice. But our heresy, hidden under the surface, is our belief that God would not ask Western people to deny themselves. Dang, I thought that would convict you. Not me, but I thought that would convict you. And this is so me. I want the best of both worlds. I want to be really generous and be really rich. Okay, I guess that's just me. I, I want to follow Jesus and live like a Hollywood celeb. I want character, but I don't want suffering. I want humility. I really want humility, but I don't want humiliation. I want patience, but I don't want to wait. I want kindness, but I don't want people in my life on a regular basis who agitate me, ever. <laughs> I want to hear God's voice, but I don't want to get up early and take time to focus in on prayer. I want the life of Jesus, but I don't want to take up the cross of Jesus. Anybody else out there? And I live in that tension. My guess is so do you. You know, I don't know where this is with you and what you feel like God is stirring in you, and I encourage you just to open up all that you are to the Holy Spirit. No guilt, no shame. If that's what you're feeling right now. That is not from Jesus at all. But conviction... He's all about that. And hopefully you know the difference or start to know as you grow and mature in Jesus. I've been thinking about this all week, and, you know, I've not done a teaching in quite a while on kind of the cross or self-denial. Usually when I do, I'm so convicted, like just at the core of my being, so convicted about something in my life. Usually there's like one example of something. But I was kind of racking my brain this week and thinking and praying about it, and there was not, for me, one thing. Some of you are out in the room tonight, and you just are convicted by the Holy Spirit about a relationship, about a label, about a decision, about a Wi-Fi habit, about a, you feel, you know what it is, and you are convicted here and now, and you're, you're dealing with that with God right now as we speak. I did not have something like that this last week, and so I was thinking and praying about it, and I had this kind of interesting week. So my wife was in New York. She left Wednesday night and got back late last night on a red eye. 
uh, for, she's trying to start this business, and she was there for this meeting thing. And so I had my, I have three kids, and eight, seven, and 11, and I had the three kids for three days straight with no adult supervision, just me and them. <laughs> and and I, I'm a planner, so I had, the, I had it all mapped out, like uh, Thursday and fr- it was a work day for me, I was going to write my teaching, and uh, then I had the kids for one hour, from 2.30 after school to 3.30 when my mom would pick them up, and then I had meetings the rest of the afternoon into the evening, and then Friday I had a whole bunch of work mapped out, I had to do these edits on this thing, and I did not have the kids until they got out of school at 3 o'clock, so I had, I had my weekend all mapped out, and then we had like an eighth of an inch of snow, and the whole city shut down and freaked out, all right? So I wake up Thursday morning, first morning with the kids, and I get the automated, you know, voicemail from Portland Public Schools basically saying, your life is over today. (laughs) I mean, that's my paraphrase, you know? So if some of you are thinking, man, this teaching is kind of like weird and all over the place, it's because I was parenting at the same time. All right, I'd be like right in the middle of like, take up your cross and hear screaming from downstairs. And he'd be like, Moses, you can't punch Jude in the face. It's only in the belly, not in the face, you know? Mom's gone, whatever. And so, and then Friday morning, exact same thing, wake up. And so basically two days of my life just went to shot. And I was, I call it babysitting my kids. And my wife makes her really mad. She's like, honey, it's not babysitting. They're your own kids. It's parenting. It's not, you don't babysit, you parent. You're a dad, all right? You know that. So I'm like, oh yeah, I'm also sexist. So whatever. Anyway, so I'm locked in my house with my kids for two days straight, as you can imagine, and I'm working and I have a deadline for my next book and I have all this stuff. As you can imagine, I was not like at my best. I was on edge and I was impatient and I lost my temper a number of times and it was just, it was not a pretty sight. So Friday night, we get to, we get to Friday night. So we Sabbath Friday night through Saturday afternoon. Best day of our week. We sit around the table. We have this great meal. It's me and my kids and I'm thinking, okay, we need them like redeem this trip and make it a good memory. And uh, this story is way too long, but you don't care. We're sitting around the table, and I had been reading this book. Ironically, I've been reading this book on parenting. That's kind of my, like, like go be alone and read a book about parenting while hiding from my children. <laughs> it's kind of how I, if you know me, it's kind of how I roll. We're reading this book on parenting. The last chapter I read was all about parenting and the way of Jesus when it comes to money and stuff and how to model for your children the discipline of simplicity or minimalism, whatever you want to call it. So I've been on this journey, and it's like a new thing for me, and I'm really into it. So... One of the exercises at the end of this chapter was you need to sit around the dinner table and ask your children, do I model contentment for you? So, dinner table, me, wife's not there, three kids. Kids, do I model, you know, contentment for you? We talk about the way of Jesus and minimalism and blah, blah, blah. Do I model that for you? So Sunday, my seven-year-old, beautiful, sweet little daughter, yeah, daddy, really well. Thank you. A plus for you. And And I said, say anything, you won't get in trouble. So Jude, my 11-year-old, is like, I don't know, Dad. He's like, for the most part, I mean, you don't talk about like what you want and your closet is like really minimalist. But he's like, Dad, you have so many shoes. You do not need that many shoes. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. And then he goes, you have that Star Wars Lego Millennium Falcon. Dad, you don't need that. It's just sitting in your closet. And that was a gift, by the way, from somebody. And I'm like, yeah, I I wonder who you want me to give it to. Mm -hmm." (laughs) Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay. I can deal with a couple, you know, too many pairs of shoes and a, a Lego thing. I can deal with that. It's not, that's not bad for a dad. Then I get to Moses, and Moses is my eight-year-old. He's just quirky. He's like in his head all the time, kind of absent-minded. And he misunderstood the question and thought it was just kind of like this general 360 review of my parenting. 
So, so he just starts to talk about my parenting in general. And, and he's like, Dad, you're, you're a great dad, and you're really loving. And then he's, he's just, he's, and he says some nice things. And then he's like, there's just one thing. He's like, Dad, you are so into rules. It's like, you're, you are like all, he goes like, you're all about the rules, like way more than mom. And, and when we don't go by the rules, he's like, you get really like, what's the word for it, daddy? And I'm like, stern. He's like, yeah, that's the word, stern. <laughs> and so then we have this conversation and the kids go to bed and I'm thinking, man, here I am. It's a great chance to make a memory. My kids are old enough now. They will remember that time mom was New York and we were with dad. And right now, all they have to remember me by is like, we, we cleaned a number of rooms and <laughs> we ran a bunch of errands and daddy was really stern. Like that's all they have so far. So I was thinking about that, praying about that. Woke up Saturday morning. This story is forever long. I'm sorry. Woke up Saturday morning and we have our kind of Sabbath Saturday morning routine and we go to get donuts and we, I make brunch for everybody. And then finally we were done with all of that and I sat down as my first moment to myself. And I have this new Kurt Vonnegut novel that I just started that's unbelievable. And I just, I have my blanket and the house is all clean because I made the kids clean it. And <laughs> it's fantastic. And I'm there in that moment, finally a moment to myself. And then I hear this voice, Daddy, uh-oh, we really want to play Monopoly. Will you please play with me? Have any of you played Monopoly since you were like 12? It's hell. That's not an exaggeration. It's hell. Like, I know some of you are board game people. We do prayer ministry after. Love to pray for you. I don't get it. It makes no sense to me. But Monopoly is like the worst, like the seventh layer of board game hell. So I have this. This is a dumb story. You're like, all of this is getting to this? Yes. All of this is getting to this. It's a dumb story because I wanted to tell you a story that's mundane and ordinary rather than huge and, you know, whatever. In that moment, I had a decision to make between my flesh, my first order desires, no, go away and let me read a book on parenting, (laughs) and second order desires, the spirit, the way of Jesus. Sure, kids, let's go play Monopoly. What did I do? I played Monopoly. (laughs) That's right. And it was horrible. I absolutely did not enjoy it at all. But my kids really did and are still on a high from it. And we actually played all the way to the end, which is, wow, that's something. (laughs) I tell you that story because for some of you tonight, there's like one thing. And you just, your heart is starting to beat and you know it. It's in the back of your mind and your imagination. The Holy Spirit is stirring in you a deep sense of conviction. And you need to do business with God. But, but for others of you, maybe you're more like me, there's not one thing, but in the coming week, there are a thousand opportunities to deny yourself. A thousand chances to die. If you're a parent, you have thousands of chances to die in the coming week. If you have a husband or wife, you have thousands of chances to die. If you have a roommate, you have thousands of chances or lots of chances to die. If you know another human being, you have chances to die. If you inhabit a body, And in the coming week, you have so many opportunities to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow follow Jesus. And following Jesus is about those moments where you have that decision to make between the flesh and the spirit, between Kurt Vonnegut and Monopoly, between click and put away, between yes and no, between you fill in the blank with your scenario. Following Jesus is a thousand small deaths 
that lead to one massive life. So I don't know where you're at. I don't want to, you know, manipulate you into some emotional pitch. But I do want to create space for you to ask the question, Jesus, is there an obstacle between me and the future of discipleship? Is there something between me and you? Is there something in my life that has to die in order for me to live? And my guess is that for the vast majority of you, there's at least something there in your heart, in your mind, to do business with God over. So how I want to end is I just want you to drag that to your mind. If there's an example or two or three, just drag that into the front of your heart. And I want to read one teaching over you. If you want, turn to Matthew chapter 13. It's just to the left a little bit. You don't need to. It's a teaching that is literally one verse long. It's my favorite parable in all of Jesus' teachings. And I love this from Jesus. I think it does a great job of capturing the dynamic of death and resurrection. He says this. The kingdom of heaven, this is Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Now, most of you can figure this out just through common sense, but in Jesus' day, there were no banks, no electronic money. So if you had money, it was gold, and you would bury it in the ground. But if, if you died or if something happened to you, it would be lost forever in the ground. So in this story, in this parable, um, or this kind of allegory, this man is kind of walking through the field, and he sees, you know, a glint of gold under the dirt, whatever, and he starts to dig it up, and there is treasure, like full-on, you know, Johnny Depp buried treasure right there. And it's just all this joy, and so the man, but it's not his field, but it's for sale. So he goes home, and he sells everything he has, his car, his condo, his iPhone, his, like, everything. He sells everything he has, just the clothes on his back, and then he buys the field with great joy, we read, and then out of that, he's rich. That's what following Jesus is like. Was it a sacrifice for that man to buy the field? Yes, yeah, yes, it was, kind of. But did he get a good or a bad deal? A really good deal. As a result of it, he was rich beyond imagination. That's what following Jesus is like. No matter what you have to die or give up or let go control of, you get far more in return. In the economy of the kingdom, you can't outgive God. In the language of Jim Elliott, and I know if you grew up in the church, this is like a cliche, but a ton of you did not. It's beautiful. He's this missionary to Ecuador who was a martyr who was killed just a few months after this as a missionary to a tribe in the jungles of Ecuador. He said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he did that. He literally gave up his life. So to end, just like Jesus said, you and I have to count the cost. But here's my last thought. Don't just count the cost of following Jesus. Make sure that you also count the cost of not following Jesus. Bonhoeffer coined that phrase of the cost of discipleship, and it's great, but a number of people have made the point that we also have to talk about the cost of non-discipleship. Discipleship to Jesus will cost you. To reorient your whole life around be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did, it will cost you. But non-discipleship, to say no to that, and to settle for either no faith in Jesus or a kind of vague, non-committal, consumeristic, kind of self-helpy thing, that will cost you even more. It will cost you the meaning and the purpose. It will cost you relationship with God. It will cost you the fruit of the Spirit in your life, love and joy and peace, all of that. It will cost you more than you know. So yes, the Jesus call over your life and mine is take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. Maybe that's a huge thing on the docket for the week. 
Maybe it's a thousand tiny, small, ordinary, mundane deaths in the week ahead. But to clarify, Jesus is not asking you to give up a deep sense of happiness and fulfillment. Not at all. To close, I love this quote. and Go ahead and stand with me as we start to shift gears. I just want to read this over you. This is from an author by the name of David Benner. And he writes this. St. Ignatius of Loyola notes that sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Man, I love that definition. Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Until I am absolutely convinced of this, I will do everything I can to keep my hands on the controls of my life because I think I know better than God what I need for my fulfillment. So to end, I just want to ask you, as you drag this thing to your mind's eye, to the front of your heart, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust that he is a real, good, true king? He's not an autocratic dictator. That he has good intentions toward you. That as you surrender, as you give up your autonomy and your control to Jesus the King, that's actually where real true freedom and life come. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join the circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.